In the book of Revelation, Jesus sends a message to seven churches that were in the region that we call Turkey. Today we look at the third of these, which is to a church in Pergamum. This is another podcast from Trinity Church in Palmerston North. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in a city where that great throne of Satan is located, and yet you've remained loyal to me. And you refuse to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you by Satan's followers. And yet I do have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you who are like Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to worship idols by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In the same way, you have some Nicolaitans among you, people who follow the same teaching and commit the same sins. Repent, or I'll come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who is willing should hear, to hear should listen to the Spirit and understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Everyone who is victorious will eat of the manna that's been hidden away in heaven, and I'll give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one knows except the one who received it. So this is the message that was delivered to this church in Pergamum. Obviously, they were a church that was going through quite a hard time. There was a lot of opposition and persecution, and some of them had been killed. And Jesus said that he found them to be loyal, but yet he had a few things that he also wanted to say, some things that they were putting up with inside of the church that were not being helpful, and they, he wanted just them to sort that out. Otherwise, he said he was going to come and sort it out. So some things notable about the city, just out of interest, they were known to have this magnificent library. This is apparently what it looked like. This is not actually a photo of it, but this is like a reconstituted uh, a picture of what the library looked like. There were apparently 200,000 books in there, which is a lot of books, especially when you consider that they were all written by hand. 200,000. Legend has it that Antony gave those 200,000 books to Cleopatra as a bit of a present, which is quite a lot of books to be given on your birthday. Um, but uh, 200,000 books, all written by hand, and the Egyptians wouldn't give them any papyrus to write on, which is what used to be written back in the day. So they developed this parchment made from animal skins, and they wrote on those. So they, they had to develop something to write on because the Egyptians are too mean to help them out. And uh, so they had to develop a way through animal skins of developing this parchment. And then on that parchment, which they made out of animal skins, they wrote out 200,000 books. I just think that's phenomenal. And a parchment back in those days was phenomenally expensive. It was really expensive to send a letter, not because New Zealand Post put up the prices, but because just the parchment itself was fantastically expensive to have. So that was pretty impressive. Uh, they had a great theatre there as well. Here's the ruins of the theatre. And um, apparently that was pretty magnificent. Uh, it would seat 20,000 people. So big theatre. And they had the whole thing set up so that the speaker, without any amplification, without any sound system whatsoever, without even George's help, the speaker was able to be heard by 20,000 people simultaneously because of the way the thing was set up with the acoustics. That is pretty impressive. So a pretty clever bunch, and they really valued having this magnificent theatre there. They worshipped many gods, as was common in the days, among them such as Zeus or Athene. And in particular, they honoured um, Asclepios. 
And he was known for the, as the, the God of healing. He was called Asclepios, the Savior. And he was symbolized by a snake. Have I got a picture of him? I have. That's a, that's a statue of apparently what he was meant to look like. That's, the, that's his snake wrapped around his staff. And on the right-hand side, that's the, the, the ruins of the temple uh, where, where he was worshipped. And so he was like the God of healing. And so people flocked there. It was like the Lourdes of the ancient world, if you're familiar with the place in France where people go to and think they'll get healed by the waters in Lourdes. It was like that. Everyone would go. And they had all of these snakes because the snake was the symbol of the God. And they would have these areas where there were all these just snakes roaming around in these kind of, I don't know, in these enclosures. And people would go and sleep there because they believed that the God was embodied in the snake. And if they lay there at night and a snake glided over them, then healing would be imparted to their bodies. So they would sleep among the snakes. I think that sounds a little spooky to me and, uh, and a little creepy. But they believed that the touch of the snake was the touch of their God and that they would be healed. Uh, it, was also this, it was also a big centre for Caesar worship. I think the last one that we looked at was Smyrna. That was, that was the same, a huge centre for Caesar worship. And so just as in Smyrna, the people would come once a year to offer a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And then once you said that, once a year, offered the pinch of incense and said, Caesar is Lord, acknowledged the deity and the lordship of, of, of the Caesar of the day, then you could go away and live life any way you wanted and worship any God you wanted. And people would say to the Christians, look, just go and honor Caesar, say Caesar is Lord, acknowledge his divinity, acknowledge that he is a God amongst us. And then you can just carry on and worship Jesus any way that you want to. But Christians just couldn't bring themselves to acknowledge that that Caesar was their Lord and Savior because that was only reserved for Christ. And because of that, um, they had a lot of persecution and life was made really, really difficult to, for them. And Jesus said to them, I know that you live in the city where the great throne of Satan is located and yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you by Satan's followers. So he's saying, I know it's tough for you, but I'm impressed with how loyal you've been to me. You may have lost your homes. You may have lost your jobs. Some of you have lost your lives. Some of you have been thrown into prison. I know it's been difficult. I can see that. And I'm impressed with your loyalty. That's a value to me, Jesus is saying to the church. And if there's one word that just strikes me out of this whole letter, it's this word loyal. He says, you've been loyal to me. And I think that's a high value for Jesus when, when he looks upon us as his, as his kids, as his people, that I think he wants that to be reflected in our lives, perhaps almost above anything else, that we have this fierce loyalty, that we will follow Jesus no matter what. And I mean, we're not suffering persecution like those guys. Some people talk about the persecution of Christians in New Zealand. Well, you know, it's, if there is any, it's very, very minimal, very minimal indeed. Um, uh, but those guys were really going through it tough. But no matter what our situation in life is, I think Jesus wants us to be loyal to him and our loyalty to him to determine the other things that we do in our lives. Should we do this or shouldn't we do that? Uh, what decisions do we make? How do we live? How do we speak? How do we act? I think everything should really stem from the sense of loyalty to Christ above anything else. 
Perhaps in a way, it's a bit of an old-fashioned value. Uh, I can remember going to a funeral of a guy. Oh, he, I guess he would have been around about my dad's age. My dad would be over 100 now if he was still alive. And he, he used to be a carpenter back in the day, uh, lived up in the Waikato, and, and he worked for a building company. And back in those days, if you worked for a building company, you were expected to basically stay loyal to them for life. And it was almost scandalous to change the company you worked for. Um, and, and another company got a contract to build his local church. It was the church that he worshipped at. And he really wanted to be involved in building that church and really making sure everything was just done just so well because he just wanted to, wanted to help the church out. And so he moved building companies. He, he quit his job here and went and moved over there. And in the community, apparently, it was, oh, shock, horror. He's changed jobs to a different building company. It's, it's a bit of an old-fashioned value. I'm not suggesting that we should be that nervous about changing jobs. Perhaps that's taking it a little bit uh, too far in some ways. But it's interesting that, that back in the day, certainly in New Zealand, this concept of loyalty ran really, really deep. I also remember seeing a a program, Seinfeld. Does anyone remember Seinfeld, comedian on the old telly? Uh, he, he, the program amused me because they made such a big deal out of little things. And, and, um, and I remember an episode, uh, it just sticks in my mind, where he was going to a hairdresser. He'd been to a hairdresser, and for some reason, he wanted to change hairdressers. Maybe he got a bad haircut. I can't remember the story. He wanted to change hairdressers, and he was like in anguish about this thing because he wanted to be loyal to his hairdresser, but he got a bad haircut, and so he wanted to change hairdressers. And eventually he did, but it was all kind of like he was all cloak and dagger. He wanted to kind of it to be very secret kind of thing. And then his hairdresser found out that someone else had been cutting his hair, and he came around and remonstrated with Seinfeld, and it was kind of like he felt like a jilted lover because Seinfeld had got his hair cut by somebody else and they made this big drama about it and it was just really funny but those sort of things it touches on this area of loyalty and while maybe it's not wrong to change your job or to change the place where you get your hair cut I think that the value of loyalty is something that God is really invested in and values and in this situation he was sowing to the church there I see that even when it's costing you even when it's not only just inconveniencing you, but when it's costing you badly, you are remaining loyal to me. And I really value that and I really honor your loyalty. And I think if we could take anything out of this letter, it's this thought of being loyal to Jesus above anything else and allowing that loyalty to Jesus to be the thing that determines the outcome and the way that we live the rest of our lives. But he did say, you've got some issues I want you to sort out. He said, I've got a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you who are like Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to worship idols by uh, eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In the same way, you have some Nicolaitans among you, presumably some followers of Nicholas, people who follow the same teaching and commit the same sins. Basically, the story here goes back to the story of Balaam and Balak in the Old Testament. There was a guy called Balak who was the king of Moab, and he hired Balaam, who was kind of like a prophet, 
And he said to Balaam, I want you to curse the people of Israel. The people of Israel were on their, on a journey on the way to the promised land, that epic journey from Egypt to the promised land. They're on their way there. And uh, Balaam was, uh, Balak was feeling threatened by them because they had this, you know, a couple of million people moving through the desert on their way to the promised land. And he, he, he wanted to stop them somehow, but he didn't have the manpower to, to get out there and really battle them or annihilate them. So he thought, I'll get hold of Balaam, he's a prophet, and he'll curse them. I'll get him to put some curses on this nation. And if he can put some curses on them, then that'll deal to them and uh, they'll kind of just, they won't be such a threat to me. So he hired Balaam to curse them. And every time Balaam got up to kind of put these curses on the nation of Israel, he ended up blessing them and saying, look, this is a blessed nation. I can't do anything but bless them because they're blessed by God and there's nothing I can do about it. I can't curse them because they're blessed and there's nothing that I can do that is going to change that. And um, But Balaam wasn't really, even though he understood that Israel was a blessed nation, he still really wanted to help Balak, the king of Moab, because I guess there was some money in it for him and uh, he didn't really obviously have a high value on what God valued. And so he gave Balak some advice. He said, why don't you send some women in there and you send some women in there to entice the guys and get them involved in sexual immorality and get them sacrificing to idols. And that will be kind of like a stumbling block to the nation. They're on their way into their future. And it's like nothing can stand in front of them. They're on their way to the promised land. It seems like everywhere they go, they have victory. Everywhere they go, they come out on top. It seems like they're this blessed nation. So put a stumbling block in front of them, trip them up by seducing the guys into immorality and then getting them to worship other idols. And so that's what they did. They sent some women in. The guys just lost their brains when they saw these lovely women coming in. And, and so the people of Israel were stumbled. That is what happened. So something similar was happening here in the, um, in the, in the New Testament. Uh, so in other words, people would throw a party at the local temple where there are idols and all this kind of stuff. And they would invite everyone down. Come to the party. It's the happening thing. It's Saturday night. Come down to the party at the local temple. And down there at the temple, they would sacrifice animals to their gods. They would feast. They would eat the food. They would party. And they would often end up um, in sexual immorality of some kind, often with one of the many priestesses who worked there at the temple. And the Christians were obviously often invited down to those places. Some of them would say, no, that's just not right. That's, you know, like, that is just not right. That is not the way for a Christian to behave. But these Nicolaitans were saying, hey, it's okay, guys. It's okay. Just come on down. You know, you've been forgiven. You're blessed. He doesn't really mind if you come down. Come down, worship the idols, eat the food, sleep with who you want to. It'll be fine. And Jesus is saying, it's this is just like what happened in the Old Testament with Balaam. It's like a stumbling block to you. It's like, a, it's like something that is going to, just like the people of Israel were on their way, blessed of God into the promised land. They're on their way somewhere. They had a journey. They had a mission. They had a purpose. They're on their way to the promised land. And they were stumbled by Balaam. Jesus is saying, you guys are being stumbled by these Nicolaitans who are telling you you can live any way you like and, and God's okay with that. He says, you're being stumbled on your journey, stumbled on your way. And he's saying, I want, I want you to 
I want you to sort that out because this is hurting people. This is damaging people. This is stumbling people. This is ensnaring people. And I don't like to see my people ensnared and stumbled. I'm not happy with that. So he's telling the leaders, you sort this out because if you don't sort it out, I'm going to come and I'm going to sort it out because it matters to me. I don't like to see what's going on. The, uh, the, the word stumbling block comes from a word that means trap stick. Like when I was a kid, it was always the neighbor's fault. Anything that I ever did wrong was always the neighbor's fault. And, uh, and he said, why don't we try and catch some birds in the garden? He thought this was a great idea. So, he, so, so we rigged up this box, and, uh, which was sort of like on an angle, and then put a stick on the box like that. And we tied a string to the started a string to the stick and then we put some food under the box and the idea was that little birdies little birdies were going to go and eat the crumbs or whatever the food was under there we were going to pull the stick away the trap stick and it was going to come down woof on the bird and we would catch the bird I don't know what we're going to do with the bird once we got it but that was the thing and it all seemed very exciting when you were a little boy so we went out in the garden to do that and we never caught anything it didn't work but uh, but that's the idea so the word stumbling block comes from this idea of being a trap stick or it's like a mouse trap. The, when the little mousie walks along and goes like, wow, that cheese looks really tasty, and then, then puts some weight on the lever, the trap stick releases the trap, and whammo, the mouse's history. And Jesus is saying, these Nicolaitans telling you to go down to the temple, worship the idols, sleep with the woman, and that's okay, that's what it's like. It's like, a, it's like you're going to be ensnared or stumble, this is not good for you. So he was trying to give them some good encouragement to stay safe in their lives so that nothing would stumble them, so that they could move forwards and be a blessed people and achieve God's purpose for them. And so he was saying something needs to get sorted out here. And I think you usually know in life when something's a temptation. You know, you, you, you sniff the cheese and you usually know it's temptation if it's wrong. You usually can figure it out. You sense the danger. And cheese comes in many forms. It might be sex or money or success. It may use, there may be a bit of flattery instead of cheese or maybe it's fear or intimidation or a promise that is going to benefit you or make you feel good, but you kind of know it's not right. You sniff the cheese, you like the look of it, but you know it's not right. And Jesus is just saying, stay away from that kind of cheese. It's not going to do you any good. It's not going to help you because to reach out and to take it means you compromise your integrity, you violate kingdom values, and it becomes a stumbling block to you. So stay away from that cheese. It's not good for you. So what Paul said in Galatians 5, 7 to 8. Did I put that up? I did. Galatians 5, 7 to 8. Paul says this to the church in Galatia. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion doesn't come from the one who calls you. So something similar was happening in the church of Galatia. They were going well, but someone was coming along like these Nicolaitans to try to convince them to do stuff that is not helpful. And he says, come on, come on, come on. You're running a good race. Get up and keep on going. And later on in the chapter, 19 to 22, in the message version, it says this. It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Wow, just that is quite challenging right there. 
He's saying it's obvious what kind of life develops that are trying to get your own way all of the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or to be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. He said, I could go on. This isn't the first time I've warned you. You know, you use your freedom in this way and you're not going to inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way? He said, when we live God's way, he brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears on an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. And we find ourselves involved in loyal commitments. And Paul's saying, there are some things that will stumble you and there are other things that will propel you forwards. He's essentially giving the same message of Jesus so that he calls us, he calls the church to be a place where it's not a place of temptation where we are setting stumbling blocks in front of people. Church is designed to be a place where we encourage each other to propel ourselves forward in the purpose of God in doing what is right and living a God-honoring kind of life. And he kind of encourages them with this thought at the end. He says, to paraphrase it, if you get your act together, i got some things in store for you. This is going to be worth it, folks, he's saying. And he says, everyone who's victorious will eat of the manna that's been hidden away in heaven. And I'll give to each one a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name. And no one knows except the one who received it. So just a little bit about that, and then we'll finish and have some coffee. So he says the first thing is you're going to get some manna that's been hidden away in heaven. So the manna, if you remember back to the story, back into the Exodus when the people of Israel were on that journey, at the time when they were stumbled by Balaam and Balak, on that journey they were fed with manna from heaven every day or six days a week, Manna would come down at night from heaven. In the morning, the people would go up and collect it all up. On the Friday, they would collect twice as much as normal. So on the Saturday, the Sabbath for them, they didn't need to go out and collect anything at all. They didn't have to do any work, but they, were, they had a, a day to rest and a day to honor God. So that was how it worked. They had this amazing manna for 40 years in the desert. One jar was saved. If you remember the story in the Old Testament, one jar was saved and put into the ark as a kind of a memorial to remember this marvelous thing that God had done for the people of Israel. But uh, by the time they got to the New Testament, then that jar was lost. And the Jews taught that when the Messiah comes to rule, quote, the treasury of manna shall again descend from on high and they will eat of it in those years. They believed that when the Messiah came, once again they would be nourished with, with resource, with food from heaven. And Jesus is saying to these people that if you sort this stuff out, if you remain true to me, if you remain loyal to me, then you are going to get this manna from heaven. 
which would be pretty awesome. Uh, he also said you're going to get a white stone. And white stones in, in, in that place were used for a number of different things. I don't know what we would use a white stone for. I can't think of anything that we would use a white stone for in our, in our society, apart from maybe putting on a shelf and saying, that's a pretty white stone. That looks nice. Shine it up and make it look nice as a decoration. But they used white stones for a number of different things. And presumably when Jesus said, I'm going to give you a white stone with your name written on it, with like a new name written on it, there was a, there was, it was symbolic of something, assumingly, assuming there was something symbolic about it. So it was used in a number of different ways. Let me just give you four quick ones that they used white stones for. Juries voted by using stones. So if you were sitting on a jury, someone came up and um, they were accused of a crime, the jury would vote. They would either cast a white stone, which meant not guilty, or a black stone, which meant guilty. Away with him. He's a sinner. He's a lawbreaker. He needs to be dealt with. Throw him into prison and throw away the key. And so the white stone meant not guilty. Not guilty. So in that sense, perhaps Jesus was saying that that you are going to be declared not guilty. White stones were also used as symbols for a, a happy day, a victory day. A day when you, all your dreams came true was a kind of a symbol of just, man, this is just awesome. Everything that I ever hoped for or dreamed for, I'd been anxious about some things and worried about some things, and now it's just all come right, and I've, it's a new day, and my life has just worked out brilliantly. And a white stone was symbolic of that. And maybe he was saying, if you remain loyal to me through all of these difficulties, then you're going to come out the other side and you are going to enter into my presence, and you're going to enter into a new day. You will not only to be declared not guilty, but it's like all of your dreams are going to come true. That sounds pretty good. I'll go with that. White stones also served as tickets to many of the events the city ran. So you turned up to the, the theater there, uh, which seated 20,000 people, and uh, they didn't have, uh, I don't know, where do you buy your tickets from these days? Ticketet? someone, or you could go, the, 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 there's, that, there's that site where people buy their tickets and then find they turn up at the event and can't get in. Uh, that wouldn't be good. But the, the, you couldn't go buy a roll of tickets from the stationery store, but white stones were used to get in. It was your entrance. You'd turn up and you'd give your white stone and they'd say, welcome, come on in. And again, I think Jesus is reflecting there that at the end of their journey, if they remained loyal and stayed true, they would have an entrance into God's presence where they would be declared not guilty and all of their dreams would come true. And people also carried white stones with them to keep them safe among the perils of life. It was a bit of a superstition. Um, So exactly what it was Jesus was referring to, we don't know, but maybe it was a little bit of all of them. Maybe he was saying something like, just avoid the cheese, guys. Just avoid the cheese that you know you shouldn't be eating, that temptation that comes along. Just avoid that, and you're going to receive manna from heaven. You're going to be declared not guilty. You're going to have entrance into a new life, and you're going to enter into a time when it's like all your dreams have come true. So anything that you do now will be rewarded to then, and everything will be worthwhile. 